This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show, I'm Jake Cantor. This episode, Wooden Spoons at the Ready, as BBC Doc's boss Emma Willis joins us to stir through the list of ingredients that have made the Great British Bake Off a telly phenomenon. Also on the show, we'll chew over the news of the fortnight, including ITV's decision to pull the plug on Israeli singing format Rising Star. And finally, find out if it's worth tuning into BBC Four's new comedy, The Detectorists, and ITV2's horror game show, Release the Hounds. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. With me at Maple Street Studios is Stephen D. Wright and broadcast editor Chris Curtis. Uh, Faraz Osman, the creative director of Lemonade Money, is also with us. How are we, gents? Good. Tired. Very good. tired. We're very busy at the moment, yeah. which is not a bad thing. You haven't been with us for a little while, Faraz. Is, is business good? Yeah, it is really good, actually. We've, uh, we're doing a few bits and pieces for the iTunes Festival at the Roundhouse. We've got a show going out next Wednesday on Channel 4, 4 to the Floor, our music show that we've been excited about for a long time that's finally happening next week um for four episodes so we're excited about that Stephen, you all right i feel even more depressed now it's <laughs> <laughs> all going on in my life this is the highlight me this yeah. podcast oh you, you do bring joy here yeah that's my role i think <laughs> yeah chief joy bringer yeah. that's all i'm always up and chris yeah we're busy girding our loins preparing for mipcom um, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to go to the south of France and yeah, you've got drink, to go to Cannes. Drink rosé for a few days. We're interested in finding out what people think of broadcast, what subscribers think of broadcast. So we're going to do a few focus groups and we're going to do a reader survey. So if you get uh, an email asking you what uh, you make of broadcast and what we do and what we don't do, please fill it in and send it yeah, back to us. And remember to be nice. Uh, well, <laughs> funny, funny you should mention MIPCON because it's a, a big international show that we're going to discuss first. Uh, it's ITV's decision to act rising star months before the cachette format has even aired. Uh, broadcast broke the news on Wednesday with ITV claiming that the show's poor performance overseas contributed to its bout of cold feet. Uh, it comes just weeks after ITV's entertainment boss, Elaine Bedell, said she had every confidence that the format and the voting technology underpinning it will work. Uh, Chris, you interviewed Elaine. What's What's gone wrong here? Elaine was pretty measured about it all, really. We'd heard a few rumours that there were some concerns about Rising Star. At the time, a lot of that seemed to be based on the technology with the techn- the voting. It's got a sort of uh, live uh, voting system. Would that be robust enough to support it? I don't think that helped, but uh, ultimately ITV are attributing this decision to the to the ratings elsewhere. You know, it's, it's doing OK in a few territories. I think Portugal and um, maybe Brazil, it's kind of doing OK. But a few other places around the world, they've cut the run short in Germany. Um, it's not doing terribly well in the States. So, uh, yeah, some nervousness about the idea, and uh, that was that. Stephen, are you disappointed that it's not going to come to these shores? Disappointed that I didn't get to see it, but not surprised that it's been canned, because the obvious thing is, why are they doing another talent show? It's talent show fatigue, you know, the gimmick about the actual screens coming up and all that kind of stuff. You know, I wanted to see it, but I was always a bit surprised that ITV had bought it in the first place. I would have thought it had been a rival channel against The X Factor as opposed to as well as The X Factor. Psycho would be pleased. Psycho would be delighted. I mean, and uh, you know, and I don't know if it's any coincidence because the X Factor's been on a couple of weeks and it's come back and it feels a bit stronger. You know, uh, Carol's back in the, the hot seat, whatever. Maybe that's given ITV the confidence to go, you know what, get rid of this as it's an ulcer round or whatever. I don't know. Or, you know, maybe Carol got Elaine Bedell in a headlock and <laughs> threatened her. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, the stranger More things have happened in telly. Second thing, you know. But I don't know. It, it just, it always seemed a bit odd. Why had ITV bought it? That was the big thing. Not that there's another show, but 
there are too many of these music talent shows. You know, we've seen so many of this kind of stuff, you know, so... Do you agree with that, Faraz? I do think that we need to start seeing some new formats. I think that we've, I don't know, we're in year, what, 10, 15, 25 of X Factor now? It's, it seems to, it's, it keeps going on and on and on. And um, that's not to say that it doesn't continue to be entertaining, but throwing some new ideas in the mix is, is no bad thing. But at the same time, I think actually it's quite brave of Lane to kind of go, you know what, this isn't going to work. Let's step away from it. And I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing at all. I would be quite interested to know if it was the BBC that did that, how, how that would go down and, you know, the waste of licence fee payers' money. I mean, it's a commercial broadcaster and they're allowed to make commercial decisions based on, on the success of a, a show or whether or not it's going to pay dividends. But I, I kind of think that I've, I've seen a few clips of, of the show from other countries and it's got a neat little idea and the fact that you've got the interactivity live and plugged straight into it feels like it's it's very modern and current. But at the same time, it's it's a gimmick, and you know, can it can it sustain a series across a long run and and be as big as the X Factor? It, it looks like I guess that's not the case. Do you think it is a gimmick? The technology? You don't think that sort of interactive live voting is is going to stay with us? It's it's an element of the show. It's a format point, and that's I think that that's for me what's important is not to kind of go interactivity is the be all and end all of the show. If you can make it a good strong format point and make it part of a good narrative, then then that's fine. But I think if you kind of rest the whole show on interactivity point that may fail which we've seen in, in other shows then then you're you're kind of setting yourself up for a problem channel four pipped itv to the post with the singer takes it all what did you think of that Stephen? i think that definitely hurt cassette because that made the format look really cheap and rubbishy i mean it it really was an awful show i mean you know as a count don't hold count. back Stephen. well no no i mean i watched it i quite enjoyed it but i enjoyed it because it was so awful <laughs> and that whole thing of the viewers voting live etc etc it, it, it the problem was that would have taken away the usp of rising star so i think that damaged it you know or it's 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 you know whatever it's it's special killer bit or whatever because channel 4 did did sort of slightly muddy the waters and Chris, do you think ITV will have its fingers burnt in terms of going back to the international market for a, for an entertainment show? Not necessarily. They've got a couple of things, slightly lower profile things, but quite solid successes for them that are international formats that people may or may not realise. So Off Their Rockers is a uh, an international format. and Based on Benedon Bastards. Benedon Bastards, yeah. They changed yeah. the title, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah. And Take Me Out as well, I think, was a, yeah, was from a, Australia. Was a format. So they, they've had some success with it. I don't know that they'll necessarily steer clear of it. I think just on the interactivity thing, I think at some point, someone in the future will nail it and there will be a show that is a big <laughs> smash hit that has some sort of voting or really genuine live interaction um, as part of it. The sort of noises from Channel 4 is that they probably will bring back... That's what we think, yeah. ...Singer Takes It All. It would be a shame if ITV's cold feet around Rising Star pushed back interactivity in shows and stopped people experimenting. Okay, thanks, Chris. Away from ITV, uh, the capital's local television station London Live was told in no uncertain terms this week that it can't pull away from local content. Uh, The Evening Standard Backstation's audacious bid to slash its primetime local programming by a third and cut corners in other areas was knocked back by Ofcom. Uh, The media regulator said the changes would substantially alter London Live's output. Chris, this seems like the the right decision given protestations from the likes of Channel 4, Channel 5 and and UK TV. Those guys and the bidders who missed out. Yeah. There was a degree of scepticism about local TV from the start. Apparently it's working well in some parts of the country. There have been a lot of problems. Birmingham was a problem. Um, London Live, obviously not 
having a great time or else they wouldn't be trying to change it. I think the fundamental thing is Ofcom granted them a license based on them saying them making a number of commitments. And it was those commitments that, that won them the license. So to then try and row back on it, it just seems crazy, really, that they were ever going to be allowed to. So I think it was a pretty obvious decision. But where they go from here, um, that will be their challenge. Faraz, have you watched Any of London Live? We've been sent a few briefs on them. I don't think there's any surprise. We're a small independent production company that's based in London. And I think it's, you know, we were one of the companies that I feel like we should, should have been working with them. And some of the briefs we were sent through were just untenable. It's, you know, the, the costs that they have to, to play with and the ambition that they have. It's great that they have that level of ambition, but it can't be matched with, with the funding that they have because it's just not a big enough audience. And it's not, a, I don't think it's, it's a viable business model that they have at the moment. So it doesn't surprise me that they went back to Ofcom and said that we need to change things. But in the same sense, I, I guess that we need to kind of see what, what can be done in that space with that money and, and make sure the ambition matches and reflects the reflects the resources that they have. And I've seen bits and pieces of it, but the reality is I think we all know that the things that are being watched on London Live are the acquisitions. You know, well, that's what, it, what, that's what it wanted to do more of yeah. as a result of these uh, these changes to the licence, but it's not going to be allowed to do that. But I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. I think what we, what we need to, to figure out is should London Live be doing factual programming and you know documentaries or should it actually be just a a 24-hour news channel what what i would say is that the team there have uncovered some really good ideas and innovative ideas and i do hope that some of those ideas that were in development with those guys either see the light of day with other broadcasters or or continue to be developed elsewhere because i do think that there are some strong ideas there and you know there is a good challenge to be had about finding a strong format with with minimal resources and sometimes that leads to good ideas it's strikingly diverse as well compared to some of the other psb channels yeah i mean a, a lot of that is to do with the fact that it's based in london and i think it, it demonstrates that you know as we all have this fascination with moving things out of london to be more diverse around the country but that impacts on on the ethnic diversity on screen as well you know london is a far more ethnically diverse city than, than anywhere else in the country and St- uh, Stephen, just quickly are you are you a viewer I am. I watch Drag Queens of London every episode. Um, I I occasionally tune in, but it just looks cheap. And that's the problem. When you've got so many channels that you're fighting against, you know, Sky Atlantic will always win. You know, an HBO budget will always blow London Live out of the water. I mean, that's the problem. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, Finally, in the news section, I thought we'd rattle through a couple of commissions of the fortnight. Uh, First up, nice and straightforward. Uh, W1A to return to BBC Two next year. <laughs> it, uh, can't wait, but uh, can't Despite wait to your see what, what more horror they uh, they expose from life at the BBC. It's just a documentary. Isn't it is it? a documentary. I mean, they're not even <laughs> writing it. They just they've just got cameras. It's like a fixed rig show in New Broadcasting <laughs> House. Chris, are you happy about this? I wasn't a huge fan, to be completely honest. It's the kind of show that um, when people sent me a link to a specific scene, I quite enjoyed that. I felt the dropes wore a bit thin and I did wonder a bit whether anyone outside of the world that we all work and live in would really care or, or, or get the, get the It's joke. become sort of shorthand for BBC idiocy now, hasn't it? I mean, <laughs> even the Director General references it. It does, it does feel like a treat for... Um for production companies and, and broadcasters and people in the industry. It's almost like the, the ultimate navel gaze. The um, ultimate for, in-joke. Exactly. It's, so, I mean, you know, I, I welcome it just because I love telly and, I, I, you know, I love working in it. So it's for us, I think it's, it's great. But I, I do wonder if it has as broad appeal as, as 2012 did. When W1A was announced, I think we were all like, that's quite smart. To go from 2012 to another huge institution like the BBC, that's really smart. And I think that 
we now want to see another institution that we can explore that's not telly and it's not the Olympics. And, and I'd be interested to know what the next next bit is. And lastly, Channel 4 is to explore masculinity in the 21st century via a documentary that will capture pub conversations using fixed rig and scripted reality filming techniques. Men in Pubs is produced by Eleven Film. Uh, Stephen, can pubs work on telly? The Rover's Return has always got my uh, <laughs> got my uh, eye, but the fixed rig documentary side of it is definitely appealing. The scripted reality part makes my kind of stomach heave. The idea that it's going to be a bit sort of fake is really uh, unappealing to me. TV TV being fake. I've, I looked at it in a, in a, you know reality scripted reality is not my cup of tea. It sounds interesting though, doesn't it, Chris? I mean, they're, they're clearly going to go with the one-off documentary. I assume. If it's successful, they'll 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 go to series. Channel Four had big success with the island with Bear Grylls, didn't they? Which which was kind of, if you believe the uh, commissioning speak, all about uh, investigating masculinity in the twenty first century, and was a great show. And I think that they're keen to try and keep doing that. And you can kind of see the pitch, and you can kind of see the idea. It's this is a slice of what it's really like when blokes get together in the pub. The only thing I would say is blokes know what it's like when blokes get together in the pub because they do it all the time. I wonder whether perversely it might be targeted at a female yeah, audience. Yeah, well, Emma Cooper, the commissioner, said, yeah, w- women are fascinated by what men talk about in pubs. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure they should I'm be. Not it's, quite boring. it's quite boring Perhaps stuff, Jeremy. Well, any quick thoughts? <laughs> well, the, the kind of thing around structured reality, I mean, they, I don't think that what they're going to be talking about is actually what men talk about in pubs. I think that there's going to be a bit of a forced... All right, can you, talk, can you tell us about this now? I like Emma's strategy of let's try this, let's explore this area as a one-off, and if people take to it, let's let's expand on it. And I think that Channel 4 have had a lot of success in that space of of trying ideas as a one-off documentary, putting a rig somewhere, does it work, does it not work, yes or no, let's, let's roll it out into a series. And I, I actually think that's quite a strong strategy of experimenting on screen. Because let's be honest, we don't know... You know, we can't really tell if if these ideas work or not until actually they get in front of an audience yeah. and people can see it. Well, that's how Big Fat Gypsy Weddings came about. Uh, so that's your news for this episode. My thanks to Stephen, Chris, and Faraz. If you want to discuss any of the stories, why not tweet at Broadcast Now or leave a comment on this podcast post. Up next, somewhere in the quiet pastures of the 2010 BBC Two schedule, they launched a cooking competition dedicated to the art of baking. Four years and a move to BBC One later, and The Great British Bake Off is one of the BBC's biggest shows, bringing more than 8 million viewers to the altar of cake. The Love Productions format has been described as a national institution by The Telegraph, while BuzzFeed loves nothing more than skipping through Bake Off's sexual innuendos. So what's the show's recipe for success? Well, I'm pleased to say that Bake Off Commissioner Emma Willis will be with us in a moment to reveal all. But first, here's this year's crop of bakers tackling gooey puddings. Next, all the bakers have to combine the sauce with the sponge batter. The five fondant bakers put their chilled centres in the middle of the mix. That's so good it's wrong. I've got my green mixture, then I've put chocolate sauce and then I'm topping them up so that each pudding is identical. While the other bakers trickle their sauce over the sponge. It's best poured over the back of a spoon and spreads it out evenly. It's a little bit more in that one. Bakers, you've got half an hour left. They're going in. My God. (laughs) Now is the vital part, the baking. 
and the sauce. That's all. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for coming in. Hi. I was wondering if you could take us right back to the sort of inception of Bake Off. How was it pitched to you? It's getting harder and harder to, to go back there because it's now sort of each year it gets bigger. But in the end, um, I think Love had been pitching it for a fair few years. And I so really the BBC want... or elsewhere? No, all over the place, actually, with not much success. And Love were doing a lot for BBC Three, but I really wanted to work with them because they're a great company and was encouraging them to bring ideas for BBC Two. I think Janice had sort of not that been there that long. Obviously, it developed, but fundamentally, a baking competition. And I suppose I'd come out of, learnt a huge amount from Victorian Farm, which lots of people sort of poo-poo, but always did brilliant in the ratings. There's something about purity, simplicity, process, the sort of mesmeric quality of process, and actually trying to build something where people are nice to each other that we were all really interested in. So it really appealed to me right from the beginning, actually. Were Paul and uh, Mary attached initially? Nobody was attached. Nobody. I mean, it literally was built, you know, from the from the idea on a piece of paper, a baking competition. I think the tent was there, and the tent for me was always a deal breaker. I used to live in a village outside Bath where they had a horticultural show, and I'll never forget the atmosphere in there. I wasn't brought up in the country, and it was a sort of mix of heady competition, sweat, and sort of a real basic humanity, which really appealed to me, you know. Um... So, you know, then it was a process of building the format, which was an incredibly liberating experience for someone like me. I've never done anything like that. I'm kind of a docs person or living history or specialist factual. I mean, obviously, there was a format there, but, you know, we sort of finessed it and so on. And then look for the talents. And that took some time, actually. So what what was right about Mel and Sue and, and Paul and... Uh, Mary, was Mary. A, Mary, for all of us, was a sort of no-brainer. You know, you kind of know who she is. Um, I mean, it's probably hard to remember a time when Mary wasn't the national icon she is, but she's always been a constant for anyone who bakes and cooks. But she hadn't been on television for a while, although she's got the most amazing sort of TV career. Um, so she was just a definite. And then it was a question of finding the right foil for her. Paul just seemed absolutely the right fit. Because he was knocking around, wasn't he? I mean, there, there was talk that he was trying to be attached to other projects and it sort of felt like he came from nowhere, but, but TV was aware of him. TV was aware of him. He had done some things, I think. I, I wasn't totally aware of them um, myself, but you know, he's a bit jump off the screen to us. And also, because it's a show with so many elements, every bit of it has to be right. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot going on in Bake Off. It's a very complex... I mean, it may not appear so, but, you know, there's not many shows that literally have four people up front that have uh, the amount of people competing um, and all kinds of things. And so they just worked. You know, it's sort of instinct on one level. There, you is, know. there is a lot going on, but also uh, as a viewer, as a, as a fan of Bake Off, the familiarity of the format is quite potent as well. Does it, I mean, how do you go about devising challenges? And it must get harder the more series you do, because there must only be so a finite number of things you can bake. <laughs> the specific bakes, you know, the, the bakers themselves rather help us with that because the standard just goes up and up and up and up and up. And every year, their incredible team at Love, you know, find more and more sort of obscure and ones that are very familiar are challenges for them. I mean, there's quite a lot of baking out there, actually, much more than one might think. So this is, we're only scratched the surface so we far. We totally are. <laughs> and there's always a way of sort of twisting it. 
Do you do that from the outset? Is is it all carefully mapped out across the series? Absolutely. I mean, it's the fun, the best, best fun meetings I have, really, where literally we just talk about cakes and bakes and there's loads of lovely pictures of what the final thing should look like and all the food people go through in great detail, you know, exactly the process. Mary has a lot to do with it, as does Paul. There's a lot of input. Yeah, and they're involved in that development process Absolutely. right from the start. Well, yeah, you know, the, the definitely their opinion is, is, is incredibly important. How have you sort of managed the transition to BBC One? Has has there been any change in that development process? Absolutely. From the very beginning, we all said it's not going to change. I, I sort of feel that it's enough to move a channel, to change something that people love just because it's moving, I think would be the wrong time to change something. You know, you want that transition to be as smooth as possible. And it was almost a promise to the viewer. You know, there were so many, I mean, before, but there were so many people saying, oh, please don't change it, I bet they change it, I bet they change it, and we haven't. Even the VTs are still in there. As a viewer, it does feel like sometimes the, the tension has been ratcheted up. I don't know whether that's just because of the quality of the bakers has improved, uh, has that, uh, or has that just been a natural sort of evolution of the show? Some of the challenges have got harder, I reckon. <laughs> the challenges are harder because the standard of the bakers is much higher. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, a challenge for all of us. If you watch the first episode, I think you'd probably find that what they were doing was quite basic. So we have to challenge people who are really good. As I said about the tent, there's something about being in the real world, not in a studio, not even in a sort of building, actually. You're in the countryside or whatever, and you're up against the clock and there's you, you sort of know what you've got to do, but you've got a limited time to do it in. And I think that is a tense experience. So talk about the craft of editing the show. I mean, as you know, everything happens in the edit. It's the key part of the process. And with a show like this with so many different elements, and let's go back to right the you know, maybe the first cut I went to see. I genuinely believe that if you let things play out, not completely in real time but almost to the point of tedium there's something about watching something unfolding a process something being made you know it could be a basket you know it's hypnotic it's almost mesmeric so instead of kind of montage montage lots of music lots of music we we very deliberately said right we're going to we're going to allow i mean obviously you can't do it for every single person but there will be times in each program where you pretty much see exactly how something is is made and the other sort of note was um i used to say the anatomy of a sponge cake take it really seriously take the thing seriously that for some reason a lot of television doesn't but actually most people who walk the streets do and actually my other thing is i really believe that audiences are ahead of us you know it's us that don't have all the hobbies and all the rest of it and we just got to listen to people you know so i spend a lot of time in um selfridges magazine department looking for ideas Time stands still. Let's put it that way. People do take it very seriously. And, and there was this issue with Bingate, uh, Baked Alaska Gate, whatever you want to call it. Were you aware that that might be a potential issue before it went on air? It's hard with Bake Off to know what people are going to fixate on. I mean, we do we do all, you know, and Anna Beatty, who execs it brilliantly, um, is the sort of creative lead on it and always has been. So we've worked very closely together for a number of years now. For us, we still make the show... And we try and separate the show, which I often describe as a a small show that doesn't know it's big. It sort of doesn't know because it's out, you know, it's not in Tellyland. It's out in some sort of lovely field somewhere. It's not self-conscious. No, I don't think it is, actually. I mean, I think that's an incredibly important part of it. 
you know, the, all the people on screen, you know, Sue and Mel and Mary and Paul are surrounded by people who are taking something incredibly seriously and therefore they do. And I, I don't, we don't, we don't always know what's going to, you know, be a big deal. You know, we just sort of cope with it as best we can. In terms of the publicity, have you noticed a, a, an intensification of that and people talking about it more as a result of the BBC One move? I thought it's got bigger. I mean, it went over to 10 million consolidated a couple of weeks ago. It's in the 10 million club now. It's definitely got bigger, but I think we all try. We, we try to be true to the format that, you know, we've all sort of been involved in for a number of years now and focus on that and, you know, prepare ourselves and prepare the bakers and everyone involved in it as much as possible for anything the press might pick up on. But in the end, our job is to make brilliant programmes. Casting must be so important. How do you go about getting that right? Well, they've got a great casting team at Love. They're kind of renowned for casting. I mean, I would say, you may not agree, if you look back to the first series, it's almost on one level anti-casting. We deliberately looked for people who were not wannabes, who were not just wanting to be on the telly, who were almost the sort of silent majority of Britain And I think what's so amazing about that, the power of that, is that so much of television isn't that. And so when you do something different, it really stands out. And when people say to me it's sort of a warm bath, it really irritates me (laughs) because I think they're misunderstanding. Most people in this country are decent and live decent lives just because the press and telly focus on the extremes of life, that isn't to say that most people aren't doing their best to live a decent life. And so I think one of the reasons, you see it on Twitter, one of the reasons people come to it is it's redemptive. It makes you think, oh, okay, we're not all kind of, you know, hurting each other or being mean or whatever it is. There's a lot of us out there who are doing our best. I mean, it's partly the way it's shot brilliantly. Um, This year, directed by Andy Devonshire, it's cut brilliantly at love. Um, The whole team... People often say, you know, how can that come out of documentaries? But I genuinely believe that at its heart it has a documentary sensibility and the documentary sensibility is a narrative, storytelling, character, um, allowing scenes to unfold. And it is fundamentally two days of actuality. Here's a test. Who's been your uh, your favourite baker ever on Bake Off? I'm not (laughs) sure I'm allowed to say... Um, uh, I mean, there are you know who do who does one remember? Loved Howard from last year. And what's interesting when you first start watching the next series, in my head, it's a sort of letting go of last year's. You know, I'm sort of expecting to see Howard, and I realise, oh no, that was last year. It's quite interesting because they live on in my mind. You know. Fantastic. Well, we wish you all the best with the series, uh, which continues uh, next week at eight pm on BBC One. Finally, this episode, you know the drill. It's previews time. Joining me back on the Talking TV sofa is our bevy of guests, Steam D. Wright, Faraz Osman and Chris Curtis. We'll start with BBC Four's latest comedy offering, The Detectorists, created, written by and starring Mackenzie Crook, a.k.a. Gareth from The Office. This gentle offering takes us into the lives of two metal-detecting enthusiasts who are also searching for meaning in life. Toby Jones, who starred in BBC Two's Hitchcock drama The Girl, features alongside Crook, and the six-part series is produced by Channel X and Lola Entertainment. In this clip, the pair of treasure hunters are approached by an inquisitive student while out in the field. Hi. Hello. I saw you in the field earlier. Sorry to interrupt, but are you metal detectors? No, my dear. This. 
is a metal detector. We are metal detectorists. Oh, right, sorry. Not a problem at all. I'm Sophie. Pleased to meet you, Sophie. I'm Lance, and uh, this is Andy. I'm a student, history student. I thought it'd be interesting to know what kind of things you guys find, local history. Oh, wise choice, Sophie. What have you got there, Andrew? Um, uh, Victorian penny, and then Battle of Britain, that's nice. Worth a few quid on the interweb. Won't do it, mate. Idiot. Why not? I don't sell my finds, I don't agree with it. He must have half a ton of scrap round at his place. Hope you're up to date with your tetanus, mate. <laughs> Stephen, you're chuckling away. <laughs> Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was uh, it, it was very gentle, but it started to build a little bit, and the other characters that came in looked interesting. So you can start to see the sort of the plot lines and the classic loser and all that kind of thing. So it's got all the sort of uh, the elements, and it felt uh, it felt original to me. It didn't feel like something I'd seen before, and it didn't feel too nerdy either. So because I you know I thought it will be are we laughing at the detectorist or are we actually sort of, you know, being quite empathetic. And, and I, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I did laugh by the end. Tonally, it was quite different to anything I've seen before. Chris, I, I think you felt that way, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I think we'd written about it, but I hadn't really registered. And so when you said, come on, Chris, watch this, watch this show, I didn't really know what to expect. And after watching the first episode, I still don't really know quite what to, what to expect. It's really nice to see something that feels different and that feels fresh. I think Stephen's right. You can really see the slow sort of plot kind of coming together, some of the character. You know, we had, there, was a, there was a meeting of the... In the first episode, there was a meeting of the other uh, detectorists, and the other characters just get a couple of lines, but, but you know that they're going to come into it later on, and you're just starting to pick a few things up. The acting's excellent. I mean, Toby Jones is just... There's no, there's no real belly it? laughs in it, but it is, you just find yourself chuckling away kind of all the way Although through. I didn't really buy the relationship between Mackenzie Crook and his girlfriend, wife, that was Rachel biz- Sterling. That was bizarre, because I, I immediately just thought he was a bit of a loser with no money and who liked to go out with his slightly wacky mate, and she seemed to be quite an attractive, successful teacher. So um, <laughs> good uh, good news for, for the geeks out there, me for, included. For us, do you, do you agree with uh, our assessment? Uh, it, it, it did feel like the TV equivalent of metal detectoring. Detectoring, detecting, detecting us. Still not quite sure, um, but it was it, it is very gentle. It felt like a play more than a drama or mm-hmm. a comedy, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's like I said, it's one of those things. You know, metal detecting. Yeah, I'd, I'd quite like to do that one day if I ever get around Would to you? it. Would you? It wouldn't really. Is that a, is that a talking TV I, exclusive? I just don't like. It's just one of those things where you're like, yeah, I wouldn't object to that, but at the same time, it doesn't. It, you know, I'm not going to pencil in my Friday night to do it. And and this feel this feels like the TV equivalent of that. Yeah, I could sit and watch that but I don't know if I would actually take time out and sit down and spend an hour with it it's it's fine it's it's good it's the acting and it is excellent and it's a nice twee little story but it does feel like a play and I don't I don't know if it's appointment to view but it's it's certainly it's certainly gentle and and friendly <laughs> oh you like could, you, yeah, I kind of with like, more praise, I don't think. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, what I liked about it was it didn't feel like it had been commissioned via a focus group or via you know. I, if, if you said to me who's going to watch this, I'd say I'm not sure, but I think that I will. But it's also the first episode. It's impossible to judge a comedy on the first episode. It's got to set these traps for us to sort of for the plot to meander too. So we are being a bit harsh. 
I think. Give it but till episode three and see whether I was, or not. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I, was bitten. I was bitten. I'll be, I'll be cheating. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a natural evolution with BBC4 comedy. They, it tends to move to BBC2, doesn't it? Uh, Up the Women is a good example. 2012, which, of course, we've just been talking mm-hmm. about. Do you think this has got the potential to do the same? But ten, yeah, I mean, it, as we all keep saying, it is very gentle. <laughs> if by episode three or four, it's going a bit faster, the, the, the characters change, you know, the plot kicks in a bit, then potentially, yeah, because it, it's got, it's, there's no natural end to this. You know, it has got that ability to be a second series if something happens or does he flirt with the other student. I mean, there are bits and pieces that may happen and that's where it starts to come. Let's go. OK, The Detectorist begins on BBC4 on the 2nd of October. Moving on to our final preview, it's ITV2 horror adventure game show, Release the Hounds. Uh, produced by Gogglebox Entertainment, the six-part series features three 20-somethings venturing into a wood to take on all manner of shriek-inducing challenges. Uh, here's host Reggie Yates explaining the rules of engagement to the show's contestants. So let me explain what's going to happen to you guys all right now. Down that way, through the forest, there's an estate. Now, in that estate, there are three locked chests. What you need to do is find the keys, because in each one, there are thousands of pounds of cash. Does that sound good to you? Yes. Now, the trouble is, guarding those chests full of cash is a pack of angry hounds. What, real dogs, or is that like a... They're not made of China. (laughs) Now, if you can outrun the hounds and get back over the wall with your backpack full of money, then that money is yours to keep. If the hounds catch you, we're not going to see you or that money again. For us, this is Saw meets the Crystal Maze, isn't it? This is bloody amazing is what this is. <laughs> and, and Matt and Gogglebox deserve all the money for making this. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's uh, such a great idea. It's genuinely funny. There are bits of it that are genuinely scary. There's jump out moments. Uh, it's produced well. You know, there are there are a few little flaws here and there, but it's the first episode of a first series. And I think that, you know, some kinks will be ironed out along the way. I think Reggie is a bit of a kink. Uh, his kind of looks to camera and over explaining about what's going on kind of break the the fear factor of it all. But it's it's brilliant. It's a great watch. It's exactly right for ITV2. The casting is brilliant. I, I can't recommend it enough. I think that stop doing stop listening to this. Go and watch Release the Hounds. <laughs> yeah, I agree with your thoughts on Reggie. Because he's, I mean, his shtick is happy-go-lucky, and he's trying to be a bit menacing in this. I don't really get that. I, I think that I think that they've, they've had to think a hard, hard and long about what that presenter role should be. Is is it a mate to kind of go, all right, don't you calm down? It's all cool. You know, I'll, I'll help you out with this. And or do they go down the kind of crystal maze route of getting someone like Richard O'Brien, who's a bit a bit odd and a bit creepy? But you know, it's it feels like I don't know if you've ever been to one of those scare fest nights that they do in in theme parks or up and down the country, which it feels like this is based on, and they are. A, horrendous amount of hilarious fun and this this captures that really really well and Chris I think you it, enjoyed it didn't you I, well I laughed and I jumped and I think that that's the two big ticks in my in, in my mind I mean I'm a bit of a sucker for sort of low rent horror movies anyway so there's this kind of there's three different runs against the hounds and I, I kind of wanted it to build to that to, to that conclusion and, and and it went over it seemed a little bit repetitive but when it's in the heart of it when these guys there's three three contestants in each episode when they're out trying to do these tasks it's really quite creepy and atmospheric and when Reggie isn't butting in on the walkie-talkie it's really good Stephen uh, do you share I, their views? <laughs> I feel a little bit. I watched it with more of a grimace on my face than a, than a uh, than a laugh because to me it just felt like a bit of a car crash of different formats. Most haunted with Derek Kakora, you know the Hunger Games, the I'm a Celeb tasks or whatever. 
it didn't do a lot for me either. So it, I'm, it, you I'm, know, I'm with you. I saw I saw a lot of faults in it. I mean, one of the Franz mentioned it straight away that the tonally is broken up several times. So mm. when it's scary, it is scary, and then it suddenly breaks to being funny, and then it's a bit comp- competitive, and then it's a bit, and it's like actually that that annoyed me. I couldn't work out why the head starts were, were different lengths. There was no, there didn't seem no, to be any ex- explanation to, to why one was 33 seconds in front of the dogs and one was, you know. Wasn't it about the time they, they took to find it, the key? Well, that, that's, that's what, that didn't come quite come across. So it, it felt, um, it also felt like it was 15 minutes too long. You yeah, know, sure. and they, they repeated the last five minutes yeah. of the show. So it felt like there was one task missing. I think, but actually, you know, considering I am a hundred years old and don't uh, don't know what the kids are into, I actually think this will play really well because it for that for that young audience, it's exactly what they want to see. You know, it's Chavs meet Scooby Doo. Um, you know, the casting was 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 brilliant. Those you know, they're all the morons. All the of them. casting was brilliant. But th- th- it was brilliant. But then you you lose the contestants quite early in, in the show. The, I mean, to the me, girl, the, the girl they, was great. They got rid of the. Yeah, that's yeah. where the, they should have had one task at the beginning. Where they're all terrified and they don't, and then start having the eliminations. The elimination came too quick I, I for me. I'm, I'm going to put this. I'm going to put this format point out there. I hope you're listening, Matt. But I think that actually the the guys that get eliminated earlier on should come back as zombies and chase down the last guy. <laughs> I think that's what needs to happen. There needs to be something. You kind of got there's this bit at the end. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but there's this bit at the end where he's in a van and he's driving away, and you think that something else is going to happen, and it ne- never really does. And there are there are some kind of gaps in it. But the fact of the matter is, is that. There doesn't feel like there's anything else on TV like it that is that is actually scary and funny and is doing anything. And I think that's a great thing. And it, it reminded me of when I was a kid and I was absolutely terrified of Ghost Watch with Sarah Green. Yeah, and yeah. it was like it was one. It was for me. It's like a real classic TV moment. And if they can capture that again with a new audience, I think they're onto a complete winner here. Fantastic. If the RSPCA don't write in, <laughs> there is that as well. You know, I mean, what is going on with those dogs? You know, I wanted to see that girl ripped apart, but the, cu- the camera took the cut away. And then later on, I. Came Kind of figured it out and I was like, okay, I know what's going on here. But there was a, and I won't spoil it for the viewers. But um, from a health, but the conditions must be so controlled. Well, this is the thing. It, you, from 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 a health and safety perspective, you can't make that show, but you feel like you're watching that show. So they've managed to to spend some money on it to, as well. To, well yeah, right? that's a good it trick in itself, expensive. isn't I mean, it? The ambition is is to be applauded. It definitely looks big, and you know they've gone for it. I just felt like the, it was it was a little bit thin, okay. content-wise, you know? Well, Release the Hounds gets underway at 9pm on 22nd of September on ITV2. Uh, and I'm afraid, just like Release the Hounds, time has chased us down and we must bow out. Uh, big thanks to my guests Emma Willis, Steve D. Wright, Chris Curtis and Faraz Osman. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. Until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was the magnificent Matt Hill. ta for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 